Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Mary Stone, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi Kate. Hi Mary. This episode comes from Winchester Discovery Centre, right at the centre of the county, and features an interview with ex-SAS soldier and Bravo 2-0 author Andy McNabb. Andy will be talking to us about his latest book, as well as his experience as a young man, which has led him to become an advocate and promoter of the importance of literacy skills. We'll also be talking to staff here at the Discovery Centre who've got no less than four book recommendations to share. This episode's title is inspired by our guest author, Andy McNabb. He's the author of more than 50 books, most famously, of course, the best-selling Bravo 2-0, which is a fictionalised account of the SAS getting trapped behind enemy lines in Iraq. He writes two adult fiction series, one featuring ex-soldier Nick Stone and the other about Tom Buckingham, a serving SAS soldier. He's also written three series of books for young adults and several non-fiction books, including two about being a good psychopath which he co-authored with Professor Kevin Dutton. His latest book, Whatever It Takes, is a standalone novel telling the tale of one man's pursuit of revenge and justice against overwhelming odds. Let's hear what Andy had to say when you met up with him. First, there's a reading from his book, Whatever It Takes, from our colleague, Greg. New Zealand, Sunday, 27th of November, 2016. It's amazing the view just a few million dollars will buy you. Far in the distance, the other side of the never-ending wall of glass and the breathtakingly turquoise infinity pool, mountain peaks jutted majestically into the clear blue sky. Speedboats carved their way across the water. Paragliders floated through the air. Locals and tourists alike were having fun this beautiful Sunday morning. And if I hadn't been up to what I was, I probably would have joined them. Instead, I turned my back, picked up my bag from the kitchen island and grabbed a large shiny red apple from a fruit display that looked more like a Cezanne painting than a bowl of stuff to eat. I carried on into the blindingly white room, then deeper into the house. It felt so good to have the place to myself. No family, no gardeners, no cleaners, no cooks. Just me and a few thousand square feet of billionaire's mansion. Still munching, I took the wooden staircase down to the basement and pushed through a heavy, bomb-proof door. Everything was just as plush down there, but without the view and the natural light. I walked into the den, well, I say den, technically it was the family panic room, dug into the hillside and under the house, and about the size of an Olympic swimming pool. It was more like an underground panic complex, complete with bedrooms, a kitchen, food storage areas, a clean water facility, everything you'd need to lead a very plush and comfortable existence, while just a few metres away of reinforced concrete above you, Armageddon raged. It was designed for the family to live down there for up to a year, time enough for the world above to finish burning and a new order to install itself. I swallowed the last of the apple, including the core, so there wouldn't be anything left behind by accident that could eventually find its way back to me. Daladine was the American hedge fund guy who moved his family here permanently, not for the great weather and views, but for sheer safety. Up till 2008, he had been making more money than the average 30-year country. After that, he had made even more as he preyed on people's desperation and fear. He had ripped off his clients and their pension funds and walked away from the carnage scot-free. So where was the harm in repatriating just a little of it to its rightful owners? You've got a new book out, yes. whatever it takes. Can you just let me know basically what it's about? Yeah, it, it's basically, it, it's away from the two, if you like, the franchise books of, the, of different characters. It's a standalone book. And it's just about a, uh, an everyday guy who comes from, from York. He's a quantity surveyor. During the 2008 crash, the business goes bust and you know, the family suffers, everybody suffers. 
And so he just wants to get revenge. And he thinks about, you know, all the bankers and all these guys, the gazillionaires who, who um, seem to have been immune to it all. So he's going to try and take revenge. But he realises he's not going to be one of these mad shooters going into Starbucks shooting everybody and all this. But actually, he discovers a, a group. And these, these people, they really do exist. They're, you know, these guys from Silicon Valley who are really looking to the future about how they're going to be needed by governments. And when Armageddon of all sorts, whether it's a pandemic or artificial intelligence or a nuclear exchange, they're all going to be in New Zealand. And that's really happening. You know, there's a big sort of contingent that, that have places down there uh, ready to go when it all goes wrong. And then they wait for, you know, everything to settle down after the, the, you know, the, the, the drama. And then they rise because governments will need them. And it, you know, it's a fact and that's the part of their planning. So he thinks, you know what, I'm going to go to New Zealand and I'm going to steal from them. Not a lot because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's about them being in fear that somebody's got to them and stolen from him in their sanctuary. And he gets caught and he's, he's, he's basically coerced to go and steal something from another guy um, who's got all the goodies. Because within that group, there's people who want to you know, change the world for a good way and people who go, oh, actually we can do it our own way to be actually make more money and be more powerful. So he's working for one of the good guys to try and get information from the bad guys. And of course it all goes wrong. <laughs> and then, but of course it comes through. A really interesting point you said at the beginning about it not being part of your your, your series yeah. books. So what was it about this story that made you think you, I need to tell you this? Do you story? know it, it's really um, it's spent a lot of time in the west coast of um, the United States working in film and, and TVs and, and and basically there's this obviously Silicon Valley is, is very dominant from the whole of, of, of sort of California. You know, obviously they're up in the north, but it's, it's a very dominant force there. And um, in Santa Monica at that time, the New Zealand. Um, embassy opened up a consulate where if you were one of these dot-com gazillionaires you could get you could get New Zealand citizenship in three days you went there and you done your bit and it was just really why is all this going on and it was sort of learning uh, about it and for, for me it was a sort of big revelation but for those guys it was just how it is it's, it's been like it since the 90s where they've been sort of realizing that they're going to get to a point where they're, they're so uh, everybody depends on them whether it's an individual government and it really came from that idea and then learning the reasons why they go to New Zealand. I thought, great, let's do a story. It's all about revenge, you know. The, the amount of money that he would steal from these houses, from these, these, you know, these, these sort of, in effect, safe houses in New Zealand, would be their, you know, these gazillionaires sort of, you know, mineral water bill. You know, it's nothing. But it was all about the fact is that when they open up whatever it is and they look in, someone's been here and they've stolen from me. And that's what it was all about. Exactly the same as he thought they'd done from him. I got, I get a sense of it a bit like Robin Hood. Yes, the poor were his 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 own people. You know, his own family. He's, he's still got to support his 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 family, which is is obviously his, his own sort of. You know, his, his wife and his two kids. They've split up because of the the you know the because of the crash. His father who ran the family business and you know they, they committed suicide because obviously what was happening when when companies collapsed. Banks were coming in to restructure, and actually they weren't. It was all about ripping them out and earning more money uh, uh, out of these companies. And we're still having the, the sort of remains of that in court cases at, at the moment. So, the, the, you know, they, they were a victim to all that. So the, the father commits suicide, the, the mother's ill, he's got a family, he's got a sister, with you know, all these, these responsibilities. So go and steal the money, lie about it. I go to New Zealand for a couple of months a year because I have a contract to do quantity surveying with a, a company that builds shopping malls. So there's a reason for him to bring back money, you know, not millions of, of, of dollars, but money, which is sensible, where he can, can give it all out. So there's a sense of not only revenge, but fulfilling 
responsibility. One of the things that really struck me was the, the detail about some of the things that he was doing. And I know that you draw on your military yeah. back, background, but there must be still so much research you have to do. How, how do you get into that? It's, how long does it yeah, take? Yeah, just get into it, really. I, I think that the, the, for me, when they're writing it, all it is is, is, is is a collection of pictures that hopefully join together and make sense. You know, obviously the pictures would be different because different... You know, I like that, it's a nice way of describing it. That's what it is, it's group pictures because you're creating pictures in somebody's head that hopefully has got some continuity and they make sense. Characters look different for everybody but as long as the general theme stays the same going through. So for me it's pictures. So I, th I think about it as a, as a, uh, 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 a free act film. Yeah, a crack, and only because I was uh, fortunate enough in the really early days to, to uh, work uh, initially in, um, in, in Hollywood. And there was a director who told me sort of about structure. He said, Look, forget about a traditional writing sense. He says, everybody knows a free act drama, whether they understand it or not, because they were exposed to it in TV and film. So he says, do prologue, you have your three acts, and you have an epilogue, short and sharp, get out before they get bored. So when I look at a picture, and then you look at, you know, they have the, 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 the vision of what, what, what that scene is rather than the paragraph or whatever it may be. And going, OK, well, what about that, you know, whatever he's holding or what about the, the environment behind him? So you can get the sense of environment from the picture and also, if you like, the more detail. So if I don't know it, then I go and find out about it and then try and personalise it to the character who's holding it or doing it or watching it or mm. talking about it. You've written for children as well, yes. and I was going to ask you how how is it different? Yeah, no, it's not different. It's not, I thought I thought it was going to be um, a lot of restrictions, and certainly for young adults, uh, I thought it would be restrictions on this, restrictions on that. Absolutely not. The only thing in a young adult book you can't do is the young adult cannot physically um, hurt someone or, or shoot them. Say, um, but I can fire guns. They can take drugs. They can do you know alcohol. All those. It has to be in context, and it has to be in uh, in that 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 sort of way that it, it there's a reason for it to, to be done. But that is it. Actually, it's quite liberating. So, oh, okay, well there'll be you know oh you can't say that you can't do that. Actually, the other way around. Certainly because young adults now they've, they've been you know been exposed to sort of murders and you know people getting run over and all sorts and fights from half past six every night on TV. You know they're watching the soaps. They get it. So actually they do get it. They understand it. Obviously, what you're trying to do, as in, in all books, is trying to have a point of the story. What, what, at the end, when I close the book, what do they get out of it? And a young adult book, you're trying to get that whole thing of whether it's self-reliance or actually, you know, you, you, you've got to have a go. No matter which way or other, you have a go at whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Might not achieve it, but then again, you might. And, you know, and if you don't, well, so what? Have another go. So there's, there's different sort of themes, if you like, in young adults, where more in adult books you're looking at, not so much the theme, you're looking at the character arc. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's the only sort of subtle difference, really. I understand that you've been quite heavily involved in literacy yes. charities for quite a long time now. And I just wonder, yeah. like, what, why, why did you get into that? Well, it, it's, when I got, joined the, uh, the, the army, the reason was in the, uh, you know, I was landed up in the infantry. When I got there, I, I was told that we were all there because we had the numeracy and literacy levels between a 9 and 11-year-old, which is... Key stage two, I think it's called now. So the great thing about it was that it, it there's this look, you're not thick. You know, the only reason you you know you can't read and write is because you don't. So this is what we do now. And all of a sudden you go, oh right, okay. And you, you sort of got into it. So it's very fortunate to have, to have that system, you know, within the within the military to, to, to get an education. And uh so it was just basically too lazy when I was younger. <laughs> I thought it was too cocky, I thought I didn't need it. And then so 
really like it and then understood the importance of it and, and, and carried on. So the, the, it initially started me going back to military units, training establishments, telling the same story, what happened to me when, when, when I first joined and the advantages of the facilities. Even, even now, if you, you know, sort of certainly uh, military adult education is one of the largest sort of organisations in Europe because it's got to take people like me and being able to make them take information in and give information out. So it's a massive and really successful. Uh, and the MOD don't jump up and down enough about it, quite frankly. It's a really successful enterprise. But, so I'd go back to these units and say, look, you know, if it, right, it, it, tell them, you know, the war stories, so, you know, the, the, the army or the navy, they want to know all the war stories. Tell them about working in Hollywood, all that sort of stuff. And say, look, yeah, if I can do it, you can do it. It all starts from, you know, reading, knowledge, power. Um, and then it started to move into schools and then going into um, prisons because as, as a before I joined the military I was, I was within juvenile detention within the Borstal system so there's so to go back to those prisons and all that there's a bit of credibility and again it's the same sort of thing tell a few war stories this that and the other but actually saying look it's not going to change your life completely but if you're getting out you've got a chance to compete because numeracy and literacy is so low within the prison population one of the reasons why they're there saying so well at least you can get out because it's great for us because if you get a job you pay tax and we don't have to use our tax to put you back in there and and certainly with the prison population is that it's interesting it's not so much that some of the, these people you see later on the, the fact that they've got out and they're successful and they've got a job or their own business and I, actually the success is that they haven't gone back within 18 months you know, and all of a sudden, because they get it, and certainly the older population, you know, sort of the mid-twenties upwards, they go, do you know what, yeah, I've got to do something. So, you know, it's not as if they've, you know, become a, you know, multi-millionaire, you know, business guy, but actually, they haven't gone back, and they've got a job, and they're, you know, they're, they're sorting themselves out. And, and some of them then go back into the prisons and actually say, what happened was, you know, this guy came in, and they even, uh, there's a, uh, write these um, quick reads, which are for what I call emergent readers. Which you've also written. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I say the first, because I, I give them out in prison, so just right. throw them out, you know. And then uh, I say the first book I read was one of these quick reads, this one, you know, Andy McNabb, all that sort of stuff. Give it a go. If you don't like it, throw it away. Get something, as long as you're reading, which is part of the thing. It doesn't matter what you read. A book, magazine, certainly in those early stages, you know, a poster. Every time you read, you get knowledge. Every time you get knowledge, you get power. So then you can do the, the things that, instead of powerful people telling you what to do. So, and all of a sudden, they start repeating the same sort of mantra yeah. by going back into the, you know, wh you know wh whatever prisons they, they were in and doing the same thing, so that's great. Yeah. And it is hard because obviously there's so much other different influences as well, whether it's, it's TV, games, films, or whatever, that, that, that is constantly striving to be more uh, authentic, more relevant and all that. So, the, the, you know, the books have got to keep up with that. Did I read that you wrote a book linked to a computer game? Yeah, I did, yeah. I, I worked on um, Battlefield 3, which is a, an EA game. So I was involved in the, um, uh, the, the, the storylines of the different characters and then uh, the development of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the game and the motion capture, all that sort of stuff, in Stockholm. So EA was developing that. They've got major studios in Stockholm, uh, Toronto. And um, there was one of the guys in the in the game. He was a sort of a he was sort of a bad guy, but we all liked him. A guy a Russian called Dima. And so it was the the games company that said, "Well, why not? Let's try and do something here. Get people reading. Get the gamers reading. Let's try and do a spin-off book. If ten percent get one, ten percent of that, read it, and actually buy another one. Great." Mm. 
It's great, you know. Yeah. And, that, and that comes from the gaming company who just want them, you know, in theory, I thought, just want them to get them glued on, on the console. But they go, no, <laughs> no, we want, you know, these, you know, we, yeah. you know, because they read, yeah. you know, they read. No, that's really positive. I like that. I just, yeah. I love the, these offshoots and all these yeah. different ways of getting into reading. Just the last thing is, what's next for you? What's next? Um, just completing um, post-production on, on a film of a, one of the franchises, Tom Buckingham book, which is a free book franchise, um, called SAS Red Notice. And then um, that film, if we've got it all right, and we don't know yet, will come out in the second quarter of next year. So it'll be round about sort of May, April, May time um, in, in cinemas and then obviously go in, you know, straight into uh, the streaming services. Um, and a new book next year, which goes back to the Nick Stone uh, okay. uh, franchise. Andy was an intriguing man to meet as he still makes an effort to keep his identity a little shrouded in mystery. For example, all his publicity photos keep his face slightly obscured. I did wonder if I'd only be able to interview him wearing a blindfold. <laughs> and he's led an extraordinary life. It wasn't until I was reading up on about him for this podcast that I realised it had the hardest of starts, as he was abandoned as a newborn baby. Yeah, he was left in a Harrods shopping bag on the steps of Guy's Hospital in London, apparently. What a start in life. Um, quite extraordinary, really. Uh, as a child, he was in and out of schools, never really engaging with his education, and ended up joining the army at age 16 straight out of a young offenders institution with as he says in the interview with the reading age of an 11 year old it was really fascinating to read how it was the army that taught him how to read properly and showed him the power of education as a means of getting on in life he's done some really impressive work since his writing success spreading the word about the importance of reading and getting an education Okay, on to the next section of the podcast. Book recommendations from the library staff at the Discovery Centre. Four very different titles from our colleagues in Winchester. Let's hear what they had to say. Hello, with me today at Winchester Discovery Centre are no less than four members of the library team, Jordan, Claire, Jeremy and Sam. Thanks for taking the time from your library duties to give your book recommendations. Okay, Jordan, I'm going to turn to you first. Hello. What is your book selection? Okay, so my book is called Horror Store. It's probably best described as a horror comedy novel by a man called Grady Hendrix. It's sort of a haunted, a classic haunted house mystery, but set in an, an off-brand Ikea in America. It's a very quirky novel. It starts off very light-hearted at first and that does carry on throughout the novel but then it gets darker and creepier as of course the haunting sort of sets in. Yeah I, I would found it really scary at some yeah. I've not read a horror story before. No. I don't think I've ever read a horror book before so it was it did it would, I couldn't read it late at night but I love the way when it started mm -hmm. it was um, it was almost like a satire on yes. the way we live lives and consumerism. It's very, very much, funny and it's very, very well much observed. that yeah I like how obviously as the basic plot itself is quite gripping it is it is a horror story so of course it, it would be but then as like a sort of a subplot to that is almost sort of how it explores how we find meaning in the work that we do. So the, the, the main character, Amy, is a part-time worker, dragged down, underpaid, and obviously so she tr you know, trudges into work each day, goes in, does her job, 
does, she doesn't get any sort of, sort yeah. of satisfaction or Yeah, and she's loyalty. trying to find her identity, she's trying her to purpose find, in yeah, life. Yeah, she's trying to find meaning in mm. her work. And obviously it's a horror story, so things happen in the book that goes horribly wrong. It's great seeing her growth as a character. Yeah. Sometimes with horror stories, it's so focused on the plot that the characters are sort of appear like set dressing a yeah. bit. They're just, you just move them to one place or another to, to, to scare them. And Grady Hendrix really takes care of the characters yeah. and you see that progressing throughout the course of the book. Yeah, the relationships develop and I felt, felt the characters were really well-rounded. Yes. I think from the start, it did really remind me of one of my favourite films of all time, which is Shaun of the Dead. Mm. So there was the same kind of um, uh, yeah. the beginning sort of satire about modern life and then this growth of the character finding meaning in what he was doing. Exactly, so, yes. Oh, no, that's a great comparison actually. So yeah, that's yeah. good to find and, that. And as funny as well, some mm. real laugh out loud moments. Yeah. Um, and how did you first hear about it? Because I've never come across it. Before. I So, like you actually, I didn't really read horror books that often. I But as a tradition, I tend to read like at least one around Halloween. So it was back in October that yeah. I was just looking on Goodreads, I think. It was just fun horror stories to read. And this one came up and I just found the concept of a horror story set in Ikea just so compelling. Absolutely. That I thought, well, I just had to read that. So. And that idea, although obviously it's not Ikea, it's what is it called? Orsk. Orsk yeah, yes. an off-brand Ikea, yeah. yes. But that, that notion is carried through, not just through the story, but in the way the book is, um, yes. is produced. So it looks like an Ikea, like it a does. furniture shopping catalogue. Yeah, so and all the I love the chapter headings, yes. which start off absolutely a pastiche of how hmm. Ikea describes its goods. And then they get darker and darker. And yes, which is it's so funny because in, so in the beginning it all starts off with like you no know, IKEA catalogs of or Orsk catalogs, sorry, of like tables and furniture, sofas. But then towards the end, it sort of turns more towards you know, how to build your own torture device kind exactly. of. So, but yeah. in the style of IKEA, of like totally. Orsk IKEA, and so yeah, so I'm sure that the writer yeah. must have made a living at some point writing IKEA catalogs because he's got it absolutely spot on. I think because I did some research on the author himself. I think Grady Hendrix is also a comedian, okay, as well, yeah. who's gotten into books sort of in like last sort of few years, I believe. So that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think we could spend the whole time talking about horror stories because I did find it absolutely fascinating. But um, Claire, I'm Hello. going to turn to you now. Um, what What did you pick? What was your choice? So I picked Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. Um, it's a uh, mystery book with a with a twist. It's one of those books that is is very difficult to talk about without spoiling the entire yeah. premise. Yeah. So I'll just I'll take you through my kind of first views of it. So bearing in mind, I read this on a Kindle, so I wasn't able to flip through okay. and see what on earth is going on. So the first the first pages, the contents page, took me completely by surprise because it lists six chapters. Yeah. And then suddenly it lists from number one yeah. again. So it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, one. Yeah. And of course, I'm thinking, what? What? What is this? What, <laughs> yeah. what am I doing? And then you you flick to the first page, and sort of obviously for the for the benefit of the people listening, they cannot see the copy of the book that I'm holding in my hand. Yeah, it's the sound effects uh, of the page turning. Yes, again. the title page says Magpie Murders, an Atticus Punt mystery, Alan Conway. Yeah, and then there is a dedication page about the author Alan Conway, who does not exist. Yeah, he is that a, completely yes. threw me at the first. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know it, what was going on. And I, and I wanted to flip through and go, 
Am I reading the right book? Yeah. Is Where it is Magpie Murders is by it Anthony Hopkins? Yeah. Who is Alan Conway? But of course, reading on a Kindle, I was unable to do that. And so you start reading, and it is basically a I wouldn't even call it a pastiche or a send-up. It is it is a almost copy of an Agatha Christie totally. Poirot. But I mean you if uh, Anthony Horowitz's background, I mean, he mm. did the fantastic uh, Alex Ryder series, which yes, my children yes. absolutely love. But, but also, yeah, more, more Midsummer Murders, yeah. and he did, uh, oh, Foil's, Foil's War. War. Yes, yeah. yes, which comes up. Yeah. Um, and as I think it, he wrote Poirot. He wrote about 11 yeah, episodes yes, he's of Poirot. Yeah, written episode well. of Poirot. And that, and that comes up um, in another mystery series that he, he has written, which is uh, The Word is Murder and the Sentence is Death. Oh, I haven't read um, that. This is... Um, this had been sitting in my Kindle for a while and I just read one of his uh, Sherlock Holmes stories yep. and then moved on to this summer holiday I had time to read. And immediately after reading this, I went and read The Word is Murder. Oh, I should have to read that next. Yeah, I just, I just love that he's, he's taking his experience as a murder mystery writer exactly. for television to novels and he's, he's branching out into, into new genres. Yeah, because at first I thought, goodness, this is just your classic Midsummer Murders plot. Yeah, totally. yeah. it's, it's, it's Midsummer really Murders meets Poirot. Yeah, all these little interesting characters are all intermingled in this village and they all had a, a, a motive behind a murder. Yes, so yeah. It was just that classic story and then suddenly you're yeah. completely thrown, yeah, cause, which cause we won't get... say anything more yeah, about because we don't yeah. want to spoil it. No, I'll mm. keep my mouth shut. Yeah, it really is a book that you should go into as, as blind as possible. Because yep. to tell more about it would would spoil absolutely the intricacy of it. Even though there were times that I found it incredibly frustrating, but mm. he's done that on purpose. He's yes. a very very yes. clever writer, and he's uh, he's done that on purpose indeed. Mm. And in fact, it's the kind of the book within the book is around the publishing industry as well. Which yes, is really which is also interesting. interesting. Yes, and. You can see the seeds of the word as murder, I think, in it, okay. because he's writing about a publisher and he's writing about the world of writing. And I think that maybe in the back of his mind, he thought, I can build something out of this, mm. but put more of my experience as a writer into it. And from there, possibly the word is murder and the sentence is death came about. But they're a lot more modern, a bit more procedural okay. I think oh, yeah. in, their, yeah. in their approach. He is a very clever writer and yeah. I'm this was is a delighted classic to, to read this because I'm a big um, this is absolutely my comfort reading is is mysteries and in Rankin and I grew up on Agatha Christie yeah. um, so something like this is absolutely I loved yeah. it for that it's for somebody who also loved yeah. he's a writer yeah. who loves that genre as well so there's, there's something for, for both types of mystery lover I think there's something for the classic Agatha Christie fans and there's also something for people who like the more modern thriller kind of, kind exactly. of crime yeah. novels so that's a great recommendation Okay, we've been talking about Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy and you're listening to the Hampshire Library's podcast coming today from Winchester Discovery Centre. Okay, I'm going to turn to Jeremy now. Could you tell us what your choice is? Okay, yeah, my choice is White Noise by Don DeLillo. Good luck in summarising this in a short amount of time because it's a very complex book. There's a reason I made some notes. <laughs> <laughs> it is, I would say, one of the seminal um, novels of the postmodern movement of the sort of the latter half of the 20th century. It is split into three distinct acts. You've got the first act talks about a family, sort of a, a comfortable suburban middle class family. Uh, the 
father works as a, a lecturer at the university. With He's, a very interesting specialisation. Yes, he has created and curated and runs the Department of Hitler Studies and has become something of an academic celebrity on the back of it. Um, he has his, his family, his, I think he's on his fifth wife, and they've all got children from previous relationships. So they've got, I think, five children of different ages living with them, all of whom are hyper-articulate and very, very um, quirky in their characteristics. Yeah. And it follows, it's just almost told as a series of, of vignettes of them moving through their their kind of cosy, slightly strange life. And that's the, the first. And that's third. the first act. And that is, and it's sort of, there's a lot, there's not, there's more, it's more about getting to know the characters and it's a bit of a, uh, a description of, uh, of consumerism. And it feels very of the moment now, even though it was written... 1984, yeah. 1984. So I, when I was reading it, I kept thinking, because it's about the same time as uh, Handmaid's Tale, yeah. completely different book, but the same way, they've both got something very important to say about today's world. They don't seem... I mean, they are obviously dated, but they, they've, got, they've still got a lot to say about the world we live in now. I think the title, I mean, it has probably multiple meanings, but it talks about the saturation of, of culture as it was then. That was around the time that, I mean, it's just pre-internet, but there's TV everywhere and everyone in, in the book understands life as seen through a lens more than they understand it in front of them. Almost what they see, what's fiction is almost more real to them than what happens in reality. There's a very striking scene where the family sits around and all bonds over watching terrible events happen on the news, basically mm. just like landslides mm. and natural disasters. And the, the second two acts, um, I don't want you to give, I don't know whether spoilers is the right word for this, but, but they are quite, there's then quite a lot that does happen. Yeah, there's a dramatic shift, like yeah. the end of the first act into the beginning of the second act. They are almost subject to that kind of disaster mm. and then they're comfortable middle-class life is turned upside down and they don't really understand it doesn't it seems unreal to them because they're so used to watching things like this happen like they say it always happens to other people yeah. and yeah. then they are being those other people and yeah it's all uprooted and then they third act it's all kind of resolved and they come back don't give too much okay, away no. <laughs> don't give too much away yes yes no i mean it, it's it's they the acts are very different so uh, it it's I've heard it described as sort of like a cautionary tale of high-tech America. There's a fear of death is an issue, and so many of the, issue, the, the topics it covers are so relevant today. I must, I'm ashamed to say, even though it is described as one of the, the best books of the, of the 20th century, I'd never read it before, so thank you for introducing me to it. How did you, had, have you read it ages ago, or is I, this something that's new yeah, to you? Yeah, quite a few years ago. I kind of came into it, sort of backed into it almost. I'm a big fan of people like David Foster Wallace, Thomas Pynchon, people who who quote or cite Don DeLillo as a big influence on okay. them. He's not necessarily a superstar writer, but he is beloved of certain types of writers. He's a basically. writer's writer. He's a writer's writer, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Books for people that think they're clever, basically, like me. Um, <laughs> and there's something, there's something beautiful about his prose, really, as much as what happens in the story. It's the way he writes it, his descriptive passages. There's a, a kind of poetic rhythm to mm. a lot of the way he talks about very mundane things, but he, he brings them to life in a way that I think few other writers can compare to. OK, thank you, Jeremy, for that recommendation of White Noise. Um, 
I'm going to turn to you now, Sam, for a very, very different recommendation. Could you tell us about it? Of course. Um, the book I've chosen is Wolf Brother, which is the first series in the Chronicles of Ancient Darkness by Michelle Paver. Um, the series is essentially a historical fantasy uh, adventure series set in Bronze Age. It surrounds different clans of people, humans living clans. The main character is Torak, who's part of the Wolf Clan. At the beginning of the series, he has been separated from his clan by his father, and he doesn't really know why, mm. until one day his father is killed by a demonic bear, and he's suddenly left on his own to discover these secrets. And I was, it really does throw you right in at the start of the story. I have to say, it's quite a kind of, it's a children's book, I should say, yes. although very much enjoyed by adults too. And, but it, the opening is quite gruesome and his father dies right in the opening chapter. That isn't a spoiler. That's the, it launches you straight in there. Uh, and it's, it's really emotional and you're, you're, as I say, it's very, um, you're thrown right in it. And right I think in. part of the reason why this is such a strong opening as well, that it's actually something that happened to its author. And it's based on a real experience that Michelle Paver had years ago with an encounter with a bear when she was um, by a riverside somewhere and suddenly she came across these two bear cubs and her mother and it's based from her own experience. She wow. describes in the book how her mind, Torek's mind, goes white and that is yeah. the fear that she felt. And I think that's part of the reason why this book is such a strong... Michelle Paver doesn't believe in... She believes in physical research. Everything that Torak goes through in the book, in the series, she has done. She has gone to those places, and I think that's part of the reason why it's such Absolutely. a visceral read. Yeah, it t totally. Visceral is exactly the word I was searching for earlier on and not coming to it. Yeah, my, my children love this. I didn't read it at the time, and I should have done, because it's so such a good read. But I, I was amazed at the research she did. She went to Norway and spent some time um, trekking through Norway, wearing the clothes, using the equipment and eating the food that they would have done 6,000 years ago. And I think that's what brings the historical value to it as well, right into the foreground. Um, she's a big believer in doing this mm. and she doesn't use internets for research. Famously, she has these amazing podcasts that she does where she will show you tools that she's made, same tools that Torak will use out of flint and wood and she knows the details of everything that's going on. Mm. I mean this was first published in 2004 but I think it's got an even, it's an even bigger relevance today because it's steeped in nature um, mm. about showing respect for nature in the book for example um, they believe that if they kill an animal and don't make use of it it offends the world spirit and i think that's got a big relevance today in teaching kids to respect and have respect for nature. That's true because there's a been a, there's been a lot of interest in um, in books that are about feeling part of nature and appreciating nature more in the world around us. And this is something I guess she was doing, yeah, 15 years ago, which she Definitely. started doing. So I, that don't, that's a very good point. I was uh, really interested, the, I think the characters in this are great. I mean, uh, Torek, who's, who I understand that Michelle named after a wolf that she studied. 
Yes, Torak was named after a real wolf, which she spent a lot of time in this reserve studying mm. wolves and their behaviour. And I think that really comes across in Wolf's point of view as well. But in the way Michelle Paver does it, she spent so much time studying these wolves and really getting into their minds. And she finds references for everyday things that are how a wolf might refer to it. So a river is the fast wet. A dead cub is um, the not breath kind. Uh, there's so mm. many of these yeah. things that I think more than anyone has done before, she's managed to get inside the animal's head yeah. as much as we possibly can. And I think that will make makes it even more realistic. Okay, we've been talking about uh, Horror Store by Grady Hendrix, published by Quirk Books. Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz, published by Orion. White Noise by Don DeLillo, published by Picador. And Wolf Brother by Michelle Paver, which is also published by Orion. All of which are available through Hampshire Libraries and through our free download service BorrowBox. And if you read any of the books we've talked about today, let us know what you think by clicking the link in our podcast details, where you'll find information about all the books we've discussed. Thanks for listening to Love Your Library, the Hampshire Library's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear other interviews and book recommendations. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts. We'll always read and respond to any questions or suggestions. Do let us know if you've read and enjoyed any of the books we've talked about. And it would be great if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people to find us. Don't forget to come and see us. You'll always be welcomed, whether you're choosing your next book, taking a course, or just having some time to yourself away from home and work. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. And I'm Mary Stone.